Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Boston Art Podcast. Boston's premier art podcast. Where we talk art, culture, and philosophy. My name is Theodora Earthworms. And I am Brian Huntress. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Hi, is that Theodora? It is, yes, and I have Hi. Brian here as well. Hello, Hi, nice to meet you. Both. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. We're doing well. How are you? Um, I'm good. I'm on the um, Google Meet. What, do, do you prefer to do it over phone or Google Meet? What's easier for you? Oh, I'm so sorry. We usually do it over the phone, if that's okay. Oh, that's amazing. That's even better. That's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. No worries. Yeah, we like to keep it pretty low tech, as casual as possible, just to make it easier on everybody. Phone is lovely. It's like a very old school version um, (laughs) of a catch up with a friend, which is great. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So how are you? We caught you a little late in the day today. Not too bad. Yeah. How how are you both? I definitely had um, uh, a long day, but a good day. How is yours? Yeah, same. Same thing. Yeah, long, but good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where are you both just now? You're at home? Yes. Yeah, we're in uh, Brian's studio right now, actually. Oh, nice. Fantastic. What's it like? Messy. Very messy. (laughs) It smells like oil paint. It's slightly, a little bit cold, but it's okay. It's comfortable. (laughs) And where are we finding you now? Um, I am also at home and I'm here. My husband's upstairs. Um, now that we are in our forties, I go to bed usually not, not even, um, before 10, but sometimes around nine, sometimes eight thirty. And so he's upstairs getting ready for bed with the cats and I'm downstairs, um, in our living room. We just got our house put together after having a burst pipe oh. and, um, it feels really nice to be back in it. That is nice. What's well, a shame. The burst pipe. That sounds like really stressful. <laughs> It is, it, nobody died, I like to say. <laughs> like nothing, nothing terrible happened to a person, so it wasn't the worst. There you go. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm, I want to ask more about um, art things, but I just have to ask before I do. How many cats do you have? Just one. Just oh. one. He's a, a one, ha- one cat kind of house cat. <laughs> What's um, his name? Yeah. He, do you have cats at home? Yes, we both do, actually. I have one cat. Um, he's an orange cat named Milo. Oh, my cat is named Twyla. Yeah, yeah, our cat is named Harry. He's a Siamese and he likes to be an only cat. Um, And he's very, very close with my husband, mostly, I think, because my husband feeds him. Um, But uh, yes, yeah, yeah, we just the one. Oh, that's so sweet. He's a baby of the house. (laughs) Yes, he is. (laughs) That's wonderful. Um, I wanted to kind of jump into things. We have uh, limited time tonight. but yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the curatorial projects you're working on right now? Yeah, um, there are a few of them. And so you can tell me which ones are maybe more interesting or that, that I should focus on. But um, I am working at the museum on a number of things. There's a collection exhibition that's coming up. that will be in the Lindy Wing 
in July, and I'm working on that with my really wonderful colleague in contemporary, Kendall DeBoer. And Kendall and I have been working probably for the last year or so now, maybe a bit more. Um, it's called Tender Loving Care, and it's work from the collection. And we're looking at um, many different forms of care, um, both the process of making a work of art, which is a form of care in and of itself. We're thinking about the preservation and the storage of it. Um, and then we're thinking about the ways in which um, these works either depict or evoke different forms of care through their subject or their materiality. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's been a really nice show to work on. Um, and it's been really fun to go back into the collection and get some deep cuts out, things that haven't been seen in a long, long time, mm. if ever, actually, sometimes. Um, it's a lot of women artists. It's across media. So there'll be lots of textiles and ceramics as well as um, paintings and um uh, photography and print so it really crosses all media um which we're very excited about and yeah we've got uh works by like a really huge sort of 10 or so foot painting by joan snyder a really wonderful large work again by miriam shapiro neither of which have been out in at least 20 maybe 30 years in some cases mm. and then there's some really fantastic um acquisitions that have come through another curatorial project that I'm doing called Craft Schools um, and uh, they've never been seen because they're brand new so it's a, a lot of um, work in um, sometimes in media that's not usually seen in those contemporary galleries and really heavy um, especially on women and BIPOC artists um, and so yeah I, I'm excited about that one we're working with a really fantastic designer called Sana Rao who is in um, in the design department at the MFA and has been with us, I think, for I think just over, a little over seven or eight months at the museum. And she's only 25, um, well, I say only 25, she's a grown human adult um, <laughs> at 25, but she's still really young in her career, but really brilliant. So it's been lovely to work with her and with Nick and Victoria and Skyla um, in the design department um, and with lots of colleagues too. We've had a really great collaboration from our colleagues in LCE um, and they've been at all of the design meetings as well. So yeah, it's, it's been a really lovely process doing that project. Um, I'm also working on the SMFA Traveling Fellow Exhibition, uh, mm. which is my, my third time getting to do that show. And it's so nice. We get to partner with um, an alum from the SMFA who's had the, the Traveling Fellow there, Fellowship. They give out 10 a year. And I think it used to be for when... Um, they would send young male painters off to have like the grand tour of Italy. Um, and now it's obviously very different because uh, anyone can apply. And so you get $10,000 to further your practice through travel of some kind. Um, and then every two years, all of those artists are kind of given, handed over on a piece of paper to a curator at the MFA. There's about 20 of them. And that curator picks maybe three, four, five people to go to studio visits with and then chooses one of them to do an exhibition with. So that's how we did um, Helena Metaferia's show a couple of years ago and Samantha Nye. And so this year in the fall, it will be Dinor Justice, who is a Brazilian-born, um, Boston-based painter and sculptor. Um, and she looks a lot at um, the environment and uh, gendered experiences, I guess, is a way to, to sum mm. up her work. It's really delicate and beautiful. Um, and then I've been working on a project called Craft Schools, which has taken me across the states on the train to go visit craft artists. 
Oh, wonderful. That sounds like an unbelievable amount of work. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a lot of work. I do some curatorial projects outside of the museum, too, and so it keeps me busy. Um, (laughs) But it also, it feels, um, it it makes me feel uh, good and alive as well. It's a good amount of writing and, and a good amount of meeting people and working with other people. Yeah, we've we've interviewed a few museum and arts industry professionals recently that uh, identify as an independent curator. Would you consider yourself in that that kind of thinking? Yeah, I mean, I definitely um, the work that I do is often one foot in and one foot out of museums. Necessarily, so some of the time, um, one of the main independent projects that I do is called Designing Motherhood, hmm. and that has ended up being a book and an exhibition and programs and many other things actually. And it's I've, I've been working on it now with a team of folks, uh, a team of really amazing collaborators since about 2017. And um, it's independent only because I really couldn't get any of the museums at which I worked to take it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to do it in evenings and weekends. So in that sense, yes, I, I have a practice as an independent curator. Um, but then I've also always pretty much worked for institutions as well. So um, I guess it's sort of a hybrid. Yeah, one <laughs> foot in the museum and one foot out of the museum. What does that look like, the genesis of a project that isn't like born of an institution or through the funding of an institution? Oh, God, that's a really great question. So um, for Designing Motherhood, it looks like every evening and weekend of yours for years. Um, It looks like being both a curator but also a fundraiser and part of development for your project, Um, being a designer sometimes for your projects, doing the exhibition design, Um, being... Uh, registrar for your project, <laughs> um, uh, being an educator as part of your project, it, it's sort of doing all of the things um, simultaneously mm. and and working with an amazing team of people that you kind of get to build the culture with on the project, which I really appreciate because that can be harder to control within an institution. Um, but for Designing Motherhood, it started when I wanted to think about looking at the arc of human reproduction through the lens of design. I'm a, a material culture curator, and so I Usually I'm working with objects, ephemera, systems, those types of things. And I couldn't gain traction at any of the museums at which I worked. I was at MoMA when I started this idea, and then I went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Then I came to the MFA, and I couldn't find anywhere in my day jobs that would allow me to pitch this as an exhibition or book project or even really a public program, um, looking at at the arc of human reproduction, so contraception, the the choice or lack thereof to reproduce, all the way through to the postpartum period, um, in in a in a kind of arc that is my contention and the project's contention that touches everybody at least once because everybody's born. So mm. it's, it's sort of got a very wide applicability. But um, yeah, I find it uh, nigh on impossible to have uh, an institution take it on. And so it then looked like trying to find ways to fundraise outside of the museum. Um, So we fundraised about $400,000 for that project to happen so we could pay people adequately, uh, pay for the printing of the book, the making of the exhibition, um, and so that we could partner properly with our um, uh, community partners as well. We we embedded with... uh, 
local community help organizations in each place that this project went. Um, so it was a lot of work is what it looked like, but it also, in many ways, was the favorite kind of work I've ever done because it was outside of the institutional politics of um, work, which meant that the relationships that we developed could be developed maybe more slowly and intentionally and kept for longer. And when we said we were going to do something, we really did it and we mm-hmm. stuck to that. Hmm. What made you want to be uh, pitching this specific show to museums as opposed to like a perhaps a, a private gallery or something like that? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, private galleries now actually do really wonderful exhibitions. Um, and I always think they're kind of they're connected with one another and have been now for, for you know, I for at least sort of 15 or so years, I think back to when uh, the really quite legendary curator John Elderfield was at MoMA and then he left and went to Gagosian. Um, and those types of spaces and also smaller, more independent spaces often have more agency to choose the subject matter that they want and to, um, to put on, you know, quote-unquote, museum-quality exhibitions with amazing publications. Um, but I think, I don't know, I'm... Uh, it's funny actually because in some ways those spaces are also free to get into rather than the the charge that you can have for a, a museum institution and so there is a, a kind of an accessibility to them in some ways that museums don't have mm. um, but I think you know with museums I think about them as uh, almost like libraries in that they are spaces of public discussion they're sort of in, in their most ideal sense, a uh, place of, of kind of civic discourse. And um, they're spaces that people come to to think about ideas deeply. I think sometimes in gallery settings, it's not actually that you don't get to think about ideas deeply, you, you certainly do, but the exhibitions there can be shorter runs um, and they, they just have a different kind of feel to them in, in some ways. And we wanted this to be a subject matter that was taken as seriously as... I don't know, a Saitwambly exhibition <laughs> um, because it has as much import in people's lives. And so, yeah, I think we wanted, we really wanted to be in a space like that. Um, the irony is actually that we ended up working with a medical museum in Philly, then the Mass Art Museum, um, and then the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle, and then it'll go to a design museum in Stockholm next year. And all of these spaces are free to get into. So, that has been important to maintain. But yeah, I think it was that idea of sort of civic discourse, being able to to show these ideas and these works and these artists and designers in the same spaces that we think about the rest of art history. Mm. Do you feel, it sounds like a lot of the projects that you're working on, um, I know you'd mentioned centering like women artists or femme artists, um, childbirth, um, BIPOC artists. Do you feel like those themes are part of the reason why it's difficult to get a project like this into an institution like a museum? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and I think, you know, we have a specific definition of motherhood, actually, that's probably worth me being um, really uh, transparent about. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about motherhood, we think about it beyond biology and beyond the constraints of gender. Um, we certainly in the book um, and in, in parts of the exhibition, too, have looked at uh, masculine birth, for example, or mm-hmm. um, issues that really affect uh, folks 
um, being born, which is a, an experience that literally every every living person has had. And so while it can be a gendered experience, certainly it has often been marginalized or um, made taboo because of that, or people have been denied healthcare because of their uh, gender expression. Um, uh, it, it is uh, a, a term which we unpack at least we hope to um some of its real naughtiness um but uh yeah I, and uh, theodore can you remind me of the question that you started yes yeah it, yeah I, I remember now is it harder to have it within museum spaces because it it can be gendered in that way yes i think so i think um the the object that we began with actually in many ways was the breast pump um and that there was a really great design history behind it um and we i brought that to MoMA at the time when i was a curatorial assistant there and was very roundly told you know it's not really you know it, it can't be considered as part of our collection um and i think that was really because many of the deciders had never used that uh object it was never something that they had to think about in the same way they, they didn't have to think about contraception or their um, possible inability to have uh, autonomy and control over, over their reproductive capabilities um, the people who are deciding what kind of books get greenlit and exhibitions get greenlit are often not the people who find themselves super invested in those conversations um, because they are um, usually not the people undertaking reproductive labor. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. That's interesting. I've never, I haven't heard the term um, reproductive labor before. That, I was just thinking about <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's it's definitely um, uh, a, a term that is out there mm. amongst writers who are thinking about um, the ways in which it, it takes you know bodily physical and emotional labor to yes. procreate and while that is often sold to us as you know a, a middle-class phenomenon that we choose to do um it is anything but in a society where reproductive capacity is often controlled by the government mm -hmm. and that's not just in the united states that's in many many places across the world and across history and time and so reproductive labor is is a way of understanding that um, to uh, give birth or to mother or to parent in ways that go beyond, you know, looking after uh, something or uh, somebody, somebody who is biologically connected to you is a form of work, and it's often um, the one of the only forms of work that isn't compensated mm -hmm. um, or acknowledged or valued socially, um, unless it is. Uh, 
sanitized or um, uh, shown within very specific boundaries of race, gender, and class. And in a lot of ways, that kind of work is is often people are kind of made sorry for 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 doing it or attempting to oh, live yeah. up to it. You know, because our society doesn't exactly support people who who aren't whole, who aren't uh, spectacularly succeeding at doing that. Like people who are struggling in their parenting or something like that are, are often completely, completely denigrated and punished. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we live in a country where 25% of postpartum people go back to work within 10 days because there is no social safety net. Mm. Um, so you either have to be, you know, fairly comfortable in terms of your economic and social status um, to be able to have control at that point in time or um, you're back within the workforce. And yeah, I mean, I think we saw a little bit more of people's lives over the pandemic, that kind of domestic curtain was revealed, um, but it was not in any way um, more supported because of that. It's not like we magically then were given paid family leave or um, child benefits were continued after the pandemic benefits ended. Um, and I think, you know, some people do not have children. They, they don't have children yet, or they may choose never to have children. And I think this is a question that goes beyond just uh, whether or not your family includes, you know, babies and infants and children. It's a, it's a question of solidarity amongst um, uh, people in a U.S. workforce that is particularly hostile to anybody who is not willing to work every single hour of the day and just be grateful to have a job. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a subject matter that is both um, very specific in terms of some of its biological references to reproductive ca- capacity, but it's also part of larger questions around labor um, and around how we value work, um, both personally, but also socially uh, in a country where um, people are told often to pull themselves up by their bootstraps um, or to, you know, just get on with it and grin and bear it um, without really uh being um, valued as uh, humans as well as workers. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of in, in talking too about, I'm sorry, Theo, what were you going to say? No, it's okay. Oh, I was going to say, in terms of talking about, about labor and unpaid labor and stuff, uh, changing gears a little bit, you got a lot of, or you made a lot of waves working in the museum field as well in terms of uh, salary transparency. Yeah. We'd love uh, to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the well, so the project that we did um, back in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, was on. Uh, yeah, we did a uh, we created a spreadsheet uh, that was an attempt at thinking about salary transparency. Um, and I created it with colleagues. There were five of us in a group um, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Some people still remain anonymous. Um, some people, like Dr. Nicole Cook, who's a really dear friend, now feel comfortable um, not being anonymous. At the time, uh, everybody but me was in a contingent position. And so um, I was not anonymous so that we could uh, talk about it in public. But um, yeah, it just really came out of a discussion one evening when we were um, comparing salaries because somebody had to put a number on a salary range on a cover letter that they were sending to an employer as a prospective employee. 
and um, it kind of snowballed from there. I, I'm a student at the moment at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, and so I um, sent it to my CUNY listserv. I thought that the three or 400 or so people who are on my art history program, either currently or alum who are on that um, email listserv, would be willing to fill out their details. It's a fairly politically active um, uh, program and group, and they were, which was great, but then it, it went uh, it, it, it made the rounds pretty quickly and about 3,500 people in the end over the next couple of months added their salaries as well. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it was it, it provoked, I think, some questions um, individually for people, but I think also um, institutionally or within departments about the uh, relative stagnancy of salaries, um, people who had not had raises in many, many years, if ever, um, and people who realized that they were really underpaid and that um, relative to uh, salaries that were being made by leadership who did have contracts um, for raises on a yearly basis, sometimes based on performance, sometimes not, um, that they, they, you know, rank and file workers within museums wanted to have that kind of benefit too mm-hmm. and deserved it. It came at such an interesting time too, because I remember that happening um, in, was it late 2019 or mid 2019? It was May 2019. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so right before the pandemic Yeah. <laughs> and then everything that came to follow, like the idea of a museum union maybe was not unheard of at the time, but it was something I hadn't heard of at the time. Yeah. Um, there's been a wave of that since the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, very definitely. I think so. The salary uh, transparency spreadsheet came out in May 2019, and that was about five or six months after the new museum had declared their union or their intent to unionize, mm. which was very, very powerful. Um, I had just come from MoMA, where there was a union, and there had been since 1970, one of the very few museums to have a union. And um, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, I was there as part of the early organizing of their union, but um, others really, really uh, moved that project forward and had to endure quite a lot, including a three-week strike um, not that long ago mm-hmm. uh, in order to have their contract ratified. And then at the MFA, a union came about um which was already in progress when I got to the museum, but something that I felt very strongly about and participated in. And I'm now one of the five union delegates at the museum. Um, And so, yeah, I think that uh, like any political system, a union is not a perfect system. You have to hold it accountable, but it is a way to make sure that when things that are untoward or things that could be better in the workplace, that there is a system of accountability for an institution um, like a museum. So there's a place where employees can go um, to make sure that, that, that where steps need to be taken, they can be taken together. Hmm. Which it's such an important thing because not even just in terms of um, like income and salary, but in terms of just having a resource for like when we're talking about um even in terms of exhibitions and content, some topics might not be as welcome in those spaces. There's a ripple effect there for employees of that space or even just participants in that space. And something that I've noticed um, with the sort of change the museum ethos of the last few years is talking about the whole picture of that and what the museum's job is or a museum's job is as sort of an arbiter of culture or a civic center, I guess, um, and what that museum politics looks like when it ripples into things like art and history and the preservation of history. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, those are topics that at Union uh, maybe can contribute to by being there in some sense, but I think go so far beyond anything like that. Mm. Um, I mean, those are, those are questions that I ask every single day when I'm in my job, and I don't have good answers for them a lot of the time. I increasingly, I've, I've spent much of my career, most of my career in larger museums. And the longer I'm spending in these larger institutions, I think the more I am realizing that I'm not sure that such big ships can actually respond adequately to the pressing needs that are articulated outside of their walls and that are experienced by both their workforce and the visitors inside of their walls. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's for the lack of desire to at all. Um, and I don't think it's the, the, that it's impossible. I think some exhibitions are uh, timely and um, important and can really change the way that people see things. But um, nonprofits are set up to do a whole lot with little resource. Mm-hmm. And I think that resource is not just financial, but also sort of um, staff and bandwidth and human resource. And that's definitely been constrained over the pandemic. And I, I think people are doing their best. They, they often put their best foot forward, both both in terms of, again, rank and file workers and leadership. But um, it is harder to make significant changes to structures when the structures are so large. And I think a lot about that, for example, I'm from Scotland. Uh, we have a population of about 5.5 million people there. And it's a lot easier with a smaller population to think about benefits like free education, free healthcare, um, things that can make a society and a, a social safety net um, that, that is more equitable, let's put it that way. Mm. And then I look at the States, which has upwards of, I don't know, 340, 50, 60 million people. It, it, it's upwards of 300 million anyway. And it's maybe possible to do things on a state-by-state level, and indeed that's the, the federalist system, I guess. But um, it's harder to find common ground and to move in um to move at all uh in such a deeply divided um and large large um uh, uh, political body mm. and so i think I, I feel often the same looking at museums right now where it's harder to, to truly respond to the moment in time when you're a very very big ship um, and I think some of the most exciting work that I'm seeing is in smaller institutions, which I got to meet a lot of actually in the project that I've been doing recently, um, going across the states on the train for craft schools. A lot of those institutions were much smaller and therefore much more nimble and agile in their ability to reflect and respond to and be proactively involved in uh, changing culture. Interesting. Do you think that I like that point, too, about smaller institutions being able to kind of bob and weave with the changing times. I'm curious to know, do you think that or I get actually not do you think, but why do you think that the museums typically I mean, we we're focused on the MFA Boston a lot just because, you know, we're local. But why do you think it is that or maybe you don't think this at all, that the museum has such a tough time reaching people kind of outside of the museum sphere, maybe just the regular person or the regular artist. Like with the podcast, for example, we get people excited a lot about artists or about art events or about other, I don't know, just whatever information. But we have found in the past that sometimes getting into museum discourse 
some people that may not be totally involved in the world just completely tune out or yeah. they find it. I don't know. I don't know if it's they're turned off by it or, or what it is, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear you speak on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of the time, I mean, several things. I think larger museums see themselves at the center of an orbit. And um, in reality, they aren't for most people. Um, whether most people are you know, thinking about art every day or not, um, the, the, the larger museum is not really always central to their focus. And not in a, in, not in a, a way that um, makes light of the museum or sort of marginalizes it. I just, I don't, I, I think sometimes the ways in which museums speak about what they can do is not the way in which most people see how they function if they see them at all. Mm. Um, again, going across the country, I met lots and lots of people who are very localized in their art making practice um, or regional in their art making practice. And their centers, the locus of that practice is, is very rarely a larger museum. Sometimes it's a museum and it might be a smaller university museum. It might be a museum that the community themselves has created. Um, but it might also be a place of gathering around a studio um, or around a specific location that has an important meaning. Um, it might be somebody's home or, or domestic space. And it doesn't make that art ecosystem any less rich, in, in fact, far from it. And so I think... Um, I, I think people often feel switched off by the museum because, a you know, unless you have a museum pass, they can be really ex expensive places to get into, mm -hmm. especially if it's not just one person. If it's a whole family trying to get in, for example, um, at the larger museum, that might be that might be upwards of a hundred bucks, and so it's it's difficult to feel like um, this is a, a sort of centrally important place for you because you might not enter it very often. I think. Um, you know, the, I think the, the museum demographic for many of these larger museums um, is the, the visitor, the, the average visitor is over 55 white and a woman. Mm. Um, and I think if you're wandering through a museum on any given Wednesday or Monday, um, that, <laughs> you know, that, that tracks. <laughs> you're, you're looking at people in the work day or in the work week who have the leisure time and the money to, to spend time in a museum. Um, so they're either tourists, they're either here on vacation and they're able to do that as a treat. Um, or if they're local, then yeah, they, they have time within their day to do this. And so, yeah, I, 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 I think museums hope and, and, you know, certainly I as a museum worker often hope too that museums are central to people's lives, but I'm not sure that is always how people in general view museums from the outside mm. um and i think i don't know again i think that's why at a smaller scale you can be a more integrated and authentic part of a community it is harder to affect that um in you know just a building that the physical plant being large um but also the idea of the museum itself looming large especially when in in in, in the beginning of and, and certainly even in the middle of and uh, not necessarily the present of but um the the trajectory of these institutions hasn't always been that they are there for everyone mm. i'm curious too like in your role as a contemporary curator um or curator of contemporary art I think I, we had a conversation recently with an artist who is um, the owner of a sort of DIY style gallery and they consider themselves an outsider artist and they curate outsider artists. Um, and I'm wondering, I guess, when we're talking about museums being 
somewhat removed and difficult to access. I feel like a portion of that is also that they are a sort of inherently academic space mm-hmm. that maybe someone who self-identifies as or would be labeled as an outsider artist wouldn't always feel welcome in, or maybe even if they do feel like welcome there, that it is not a place that they can access often, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I wonder what your relationship is to that idea of like the outsider artist, where most people that are um, contemporary, maybe a good portion of them can be considered outsider, especially now where most people, like a rising number of people, at least in the U.S., are not going to college or finishing um, a bachelor's, yep. let alone graduate school. Like a lot yeah. of these communities where this art is coming out of are community-based um, or artists working solo on their own. And what does that look yeah. like for you as a curator at an institution like this? Absolutely. It's funny you should mention that, actually, because we just had a wonderful talk last night um, as part of the contemporaries, uh, the circle of kind of contemporary supporters that we have at the museum with a brilliant artist called Bernie Ramirez, um, who uh, emigrated here to the U.S. from the Caribbean, uh, lives in New Jersey and is a painter and is someone who's entirely self-taught um, because he came here with his mom and his family um, during his teenage years when it came time to finish high school, which he really excelled at. Um, He took some community college courses, but it was not possible for him to go off and have a four-year college experience. So he actually started working construction with a family member of his. And he did that for uh, five or six years, but always had a passion for painting. Um, He would do a lot of his paintings on the... um, the waste, the board, the planks that were used in the construction business. Mm-hmm. And then he got his first kind of tranche of painting materials um, from his high school art teacher. The year that he graduated high school, she retired. And so she gave away a lot of her materials um, in the classroom to uh, the kids who were particularly interested in um, art making. And so for the first couple of years, his art making really happened with the kind of the leftovers um, of things that were, were and were not made for making art with. Um, and he would paint at the weekends and in the evenings. And so he truly uh, sort of falls within this idea of an outsider artist or a self-taught artist, e- even as those are particularly interesting and complex terms to, to pass out. Um, but yeah, he was at the museum last night. His work is now part of the collection and it'll be on display in Kendall and Mai's uh, exhibition um, this summer. However, I will say, you know, that is one, like, anecdotal story that happened um, over the last 24 hours, so it's right at the top of my mind. There's still the the sort of aspect to that story that Bernie had to be invited into the museum, both into the collection and to have that conversation. It wasn't that the museum was inherently accessible to him necessarily. In fact, it probably was not. He did not grow up, he said, going to museums, neither did I. Um, And so I think that uh, while there are increasing examples of a range of different artists being welcomed into museum collections and into the canon, and I can really point to uh, amazing colleagues, Michael Bramwell, for example, in AOA, whose whole kind of um, research uh, is around self-taught and outsider artists, or indeed Kendall, my colleague in contemporary, who also thinks about artists and materials that have traditionally been marginalized, um, Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. These are still, you know, curators. We are still curators. And to extent, an extent, a curator is a gatekeeper they have subjective opinions about what they want to invite into exhibitions collections public programs and they there are only so many of them and so it's not the widest possible invitation that it might be Mm -hmm. um so there are there are um fallibilities to the system of making um museum spaces accessible whether they are to artists from uh backgrounds that are not uh, you know four-year degrees and then two-year MFAs and that kind of professionalized track um, or indeed audience members who don't necessarily grow up coming into these spaces. I'm also curious to know if you found this to be your experience with with a lot of artists because like throughout my life and many artists I know I feel like there's a kind of there can be a negative attitude for a lot of artists when thinking about either you know not I mean uh, I guess more, more more so about contemporary art or about museums and and such. And I feel like there might there's an attitude among many where it's like they might say something like, "Well, I, I'll never be a part of it, so wh- why should I care?" Or "I I have nothing to do with this, or this isn't for me, so to hell with it completely." Or you know, yeah. like there's this kind of just um, I, I'm kind of struggling to find the word, but I guess what do you make of that? that attitude and, and like, you know, when you can put that up against like how there's kind of a lot of curators who actually do really, really care about changing the space and, and including people who are normally included. For sure. I mean, I think I, I work with so many curators and indeed museum professionals across departments at museums who care deeply. And so I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's sort of a lack of, of care. Um, I think it's a lack of bandwidth a lot of the time because art workers are not usually very well paid. And there are only so many hours in the day and there are only so many resources at the museum. And people only have so much control over those resources, actually. It's not as if even curators who are given a lot of latitude in the museum uh don't always have the possibility of saying, I want to do this and we're going to do this and it's going to be great. Um, <laughs> often there's a lot of hurdles to get through and I will go back and point at you know, a project like Designing Motherhood, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, what, what you were describing, that's a sense of disenfranchisement that many artists feel when they think about the museum model, that it's not for them or nobody's looking at their work. I don't think that's actually wrong. I, I think that's actually probable because um, I don't think there's you know it, it's there, there are probably more artists out there in the world than there are ever you know enough gallery spaces or collection Definitely. storage or resources to properly support if we're just looking at the museum model to do that alone however i will say like when i came from scotland to the u.s i came from a country where it was free to go to school um i was the first in my family to do so and i never really thought twice about 
uh, school being for me or not for me. Um, and I didn't really think twice about where I would go to school. It wasn't this sort of freighted decision in the way that it is here because everybody could go if they wanted to. When I got here and I realized that people paid tens of thousands of dollars and really placed some kind of wacky value on certain schools and ranking systems and, and uh, a whole lot of pressure around this, this idea, um, it was really interesting to me. And I, I feel very strongly, therefore, that in the same way um, as artists might think about museums not being for them, I think it can be sort of shifted in terms of paradigm rather than thinking about what is not for you or what doesn't seem like a space that's accessible to you. Think about where you choose to put your intellectual capital. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of choosing where to go to university. When I chose a doctoral program here, it was a place that was, its mission statement literally, literally is to teach the children of a whole people um, and I, I don't somehow feel like Ivy League schools are not for me they're just not a model that I want to participate in ever and mm -hmm. so um, and not not because I, I think they are terrible places it's just they're not really built most colleges here are not really built on a system that's particularly equitable and so I, I much prefer actually thinking about what are the systems that are equitable how can I participate in them or if they don't exist how, how can they be created um, and so I, I think you know you only have so much energy in the day and in your whole entire life and it's probably good to, to think about where to put that energy that um, can pay you back and can also shine um, more widely on others. Um, so yes, while I think you know it's really good to critique institutions, and that's a healthy part of any system, I also think it's um, it, it can be productive to think about the ways in which one can participate in systems that do exist that are more um, productive and equitable, or to make them if they don't exist. Hmm. That's a much more positive outlook, I think. It seems like a better way to navigate. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's not always great because sometimes you do walk into a space and you're like, man, like you, I, you say that I, or I say that. And then, then you look at the whole canon of art history and you're like, you know what? <laughs> it's really hard to be a woman artist or, mm -hmm. you know, a practitioner, a woman art worker, which is a woman in the workplace in general. Um, and so you, you look at systems and you're like, yes, it's one thing to say, try and participate in the systems that do reflect some of your values but if there's such wholesale disregard sometimes for certain intersections um, across the board then it's much more problematic to have that viewpoint because um, you'd be searching for a very long time to find a system <laughs> that actually felt like home um, and so you know that's when it's good to cause you know a little bit of um, good trouble. <laughs> Now, in terms of, I know museums have existed probably for a bazillion years or something. I have no idea. But in terms of countries like Scotland or the United States, like, I feel like a lot, I don't know about Scotland, actually, I can't speak to that at all. But in the United States, it seems like most museums here were built in the 1800s. And mm -hmm. to speak to your point earlier, there are these like massive, massive ships that are incredibly difficult to turn or to maneuver at all. I guess I'm wondering, do you think that that's completely like not to be conspiratorial, but do you think that's like completely on purpose? Like that, the, <laughs> like that they make these institutions, you know, massive and 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 Kafka like bureaucratic, like with the like the red tape and, and these different hurdles. Like, do you feel like that's kind of by design or do you feel like it's just kind of a kind of office disaster? <laughs> oh, it's a really good question. So, I mean, at least in the sort of 
Anglo-American um, model. The museum, um, in some sense, springs from the private collections at the Vatican. So in the, I don't know, like 16th, 15th, 16th centuries, um, where certain um, collections of outdoor statuary would be opened at specific moments in time in the year to the citizenry. And then um, through that kind of project and the private collector and the notion of the Wunderkammer, um, then moving into the, the late 18th century um, and the notion of the Louvre, the private royal collection being turned over in revolution into a, a public place of leisure and spectacle and display. Um, there's a there's a kind of neaty history of, of museums that then makes its way, as you're saying, you're, you're absolutely right, in the 19th century um, or late 18th, 19th century really to the United States. Um, and I think in many of its roots, the museum is a model, um, and not all of its roots. I mean, the Louvre is a good example of this changing, although not changing radically because it's, it's not really a, a place for the working class necessarily as the library might be. But um, the museum as a model stems from very wealthy, very few very wealthy people collecting things that they like and then bestowing them with their largesse on the public, um, but doing so usually with sets of conditions. Um, so how things should be displayed, who can get in and when, um, uh, uh, what can be seen, what can be collected, and that comes from bequests of um, uh, funds that can be used for certain acquisitions or for certain collections, care in perpetuity. And so um, do I think that these spaces are deliberately obtuse? Not necessarily, but they stem from wealth and mm -hmm. um, the choices of very few people being seen as part of a public good for, quote unquote, the many. But have they ever really been for the many? It, it really depends in terms of um, things like location and accessibility. Now, like you have different museums. I think often we talk about the museum, but there are many, many different museum models. And so just as there are the MFAs and the Mets and the Philadelphia museums that sprung up at, you know, in the 1870s and, and were very, very specific kind of larger museum models, there were places, uh, there are places like the Studio Museum in Harlem that sprung up in exact opposition in some ways to those spaces that did not show the art of um, uh, black artists or artists of the um, Afri African diaspora and so there are many different sizes and scales of museums um I think probably what unites them all, whether they are successful in achieving their missions and making themselves accessible, is that they are usually non-profits. And so in almost every case, they're trying to really, really do a lot with a little, um, even when that little is not very little, if they have a good endowment. Um, a non-profit really works on trying to squeeze the maximum potential out of um, uh, a limited set of resources. And so I think that's often where like the office disaster part can come in <laughs> because um, you, you know, institutions are people and they are people both in terms of a workforce and in terms of a visiting public. And that workforce needs to be adequately and sustainably cared for in order to achieve the mission, um, especially when these private collections have been turned over for the, again, in air quotes, public good. Mm. Do you feel like that is something that is, I, I don't know, maybe this is a very large question, but is that something that's possible to change when these systems have been in place since the inception of most of these institutions? 
It's a really good question. And I guess I would answer it in some ways with another question. Like, do we want to change them? Or is there somewhere else that we can put our energy? Um, and <laughs> I mean, I see that working in a museum just now, but um, <laughs> I, I, I often wonder whether, uh, I mean, it's like any system, how much of it do you try to change versus how much of it do you just turn away from and create something new around? Mm-hmm. Um, or which parts of it do you really need to engage like have to engage with and which parts of it can you not engage with and um, find uh, joy or comfort or conversation elsewhere. Um, if, if, if we're really just thinking like we cannot disengage entirely, then do I think that we can change these very large museums for the better, for the public good? Um, I think my bet would not be on uh, a larger museum. I think I would try and test that model, first of all, somewhere smaller. And I think, you know, I think it is being uh, trialed at smaller places. Um, Again, as I was traveling across the country to many, many regional spaces, I saw people being able to achieve closer, at least, to their mission in these um, smaller institutions. Uh, It was still not sustainable in many ways, I will say that, because, again, the nonprofit model meant that salaries weren't always sort of a living wage, um, but there was a closer and more authentic connection with region or place or site or people or community. Um, and again, it wasn't because magically people there were somehow more um, uh, committed. Of course not. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely not the case. Um, there's a, a deep commitment at any scale of institution, I think, to to trying to achieve mission. But um, it just seemed maybe in this particular post-pandemic moment that it was more achievable at that scale, mm. um, at a more human scale. So I don't know. I mean, maybe if larger institutions look um, to smaller institutions rather than what is expected, which is often the exact reverse of that, um, maybe there's a possibility to think about modeling something um, that is at a smaller, quieter, um, and more intentional scale. I think I understand your point a little bit better, too, about um, not like focusing on where you can put your energy. I really, really like that as a theme because when you think of something like, I think too, the reason that, that I and, and many other people around here become so focused on the, on the MFA Boston is simply because it's this giant, like beautiful old building in the middle of the yes. city. And it's yeah. the only one like it with all the art in it. So I think, you know, I went there for the first time when I was like 17. So in my mind for many years, I was like, this is where the art is. <laughs> like, yes. that's it, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, I, and I, yeah. I really, I, I think that's so true in so many ways. Like we, we have these spaces that become very important to us because they are formative at key moments in our lives as we, we, we sort of think about what it is that we want to do within the world. We think about our creative selves. We form our identities. But um, yeah, no, the, the places that I have found art most meaningfully lately have often been in studio visits in spaces that are not um, large at all usually one quite cramped room or sometimes not sometimes some people are lucky to have very light spacious studios um but i can find um a lot of joy in those conversations that happen in those spaces as much as i can in frequenting exhibition spaces at you know at the mfa or at 
Harvard or the ICA or any of the lovely institutions that we have in Boston or beyond. And I, I really do think, um, I do think it is a question of where you choose to put your energy and focus um, because it, it's, it is important to be critical of any system and any institution. I, I don't, uh, I'm, it's not that I'm not advocating for that. I think we need to be very cognizant and vigilant of holding, holding these systems and holding institutions accountable. But at the same point in time, I think there is a difference between being aware of that as a responsibility as somebody within the art world and then also choosing to bang your head mercilessly against a brick wall. <laughs> because if you do that, then all of that good energy that could be going into building and making and being in collaboration is being sucked into a black vortex of, of, of like um, infinity, mm. which, uh, which is not really going to get you or anybody else anywhere good. So on a good day, I think about both being able to achieve accountability, because that's important, but also being able to be very astute about the amount of energy one has and where you can put it effectively in that moment. Hmm. I wanted to to throw it all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, too. I find it really interesting, the idea of um, the collections exhibition that you have coming up this summer, with um, the idea of going into the collection and looking at the works that the MFA has and thinking about the concept of care and like the bringing that gentleness into a space that large, that's sort of an uncommon theme. And from what I've seen, at least, um, can you speak to that? Like, what does that look like when you're looking for care in the collection or in the process of making? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's very conflicting because uh, I was just saying to Kendall today, it, it, it makes me smile in a way that we are uh, two curators in a department that is understaffed right now talking about care <laughs> because we, we, we could do with a little bit more of it institutionally ourselves, I think. Um, but I, I have loved going into the collection. Um, and I did that again, uh, in 2021, actually, with um, two other colleagues, Deborah Leonard and Marina Taikenko, we did an exhibition called New Light, um, which was looking at acquisitions that had come in over the last couple of years and pairing them with works from the museum's collection that hadn't been seen ever, mm. or at least in about 20 or 30 years. And so part of my joy actually working at the MFA of the last four years has been more deeply getting to know the collection. Um, and that has been a project um, of craft schools as well. But looking at the, um, looking at the exhibition and looking at the collections through care and trying to make the galleries feel slightly warmer, slightly more at home, um, it's been a project of uh, it has been achieved in several ways. Working with Sana as an exhibition designer has been fantastic, and Nick um, and Victoria and Skyla in the design department. So Nick is the graphic designer, and um, Sana is the lead in the exhibition design. They've softened the walls by bringing in felt um, and woolen fabric, and so they'll be hanging fabric in certain places. We've also used the um, Please Be Seated program, which has been around at the museum since 1975, and it's a program where the museum commissions contemporary artists and makers to create seating which becomes part of our collection Mm -hmm. as an artwork but also allows it's people can use it in the museum space so we went back through decades of that collection and pulled out some of the works that people can use in the space itself so we've thought about seating right throughout the space which is usually sort of an afterthought you put the art on the wall and then if there's space for a bench you just bring out the the museum bench the i mean lovely lovely 
lovely Florence Knoll, who did a great job thinking about um, a wonderful bench which has been used then ubiquitously in many museums. But we wanted to make it much more domestic and personal in terms of that invitation to take a rest, to sit down, to, to stop for a second. And then we've created... Um, little cocoons almost with some of these fabric um, uh, uh, hanging fabrics, hanging felts so that in some space it, it feels as if you're coming into um, a little antechamber where you can contemplate some of the works um, in a quieter setting um, and then yeah I mean I think we've, we've looked at works that are um, they have content, they de depict quite literally sometimes care, but then we're also looking at works that are intricate in their making, um, that are careful in terms of the materials or the processes that they've involved. And then, yeah, like looking back into the collection and thinking about what we've been caring for for so long and perhaps hasn't been seen um, and had its moment in the public eye. So yeah, care at lots of different levels. Um, but care is a complex thing to think about, again, in a nonprofit because it's um, both something that I think almost every single person who works in a museum aspires to. Mm. I think most people turn up in the morning and they really care about their job, they care about their work, and they care about their colleagues a lot of the time. Um, but care can only be achieved when there's uh, enough sustainability for everybody not even an abund abundance which would be great but um you know the, the bare minimum and sometimes that has been difficult to achieve i think um for many workplaces and just people in general um especially in this sort of pandemic moment Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In terms of two, like, actually, if I could go back to one thing you said, I was that. Did you say that the museum bench, you, you mentioned that it was there was a bench used ubiquitous, ubiquitously through most museums. Yeah, Florence Knoll. I mean, many museums. I will say other museums have have their own type of um, bench, but Florence Knoll, really, really uh, well-known and well-regarded well um, designer of the 20th century, mainly, um, she created a bench I now am blanking on exactly when the date would have been, 50s, maybe 60s, um, I think with Herman Miller. And um, that's the bench style that we use. I think it's also used at MoMA and in many other modern contemporary spaces, certainly. And so we have lots of Florence Knoll benches um, at the MFA in Boston. And um, we, uh, we, we use them very often. You'll, you'll definitely have seen them in the contemporary ring before and then in other spaces, too. I love that, too, because in terms of the, the whole idea of care, like, I mean, I would have, like, if I had to guess, I would have thought they just had just picked some random benches and bought them somewhere. I don't know. I would never have thought that somebody would have cared to design, specially design like a 
very specific piece of furniture to go into a space like oh, that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I don't know that Noel actually designed them specifically to go into museums. Yeah, I think right. that's where they ended up. But um, certainly MoMA has had a fairly long-term relationship with um, designers who have worked with Herman Miller. And in fact, when I worked at MoMA, Herman Miller was just around the corner in Midtown. And hmm. you used to get a discount there as well as at the MoMA store, although <laughs> I never earned enough to, to buy anything magnificent presented either of them but uh <laughs> yes uh if, if you could flex then you you can have a good discount at either either place <laughs> <laughs> wow that's so funny i guess it makes sense that um something like that like there's so much attention to detail in all of the galleries that um the mfa and i'm sure the moma as well that it makes sense that it wouldn't just be an ikea bench i guess but. right yeah i mean ikea has an amazing design history too like now we're really getting into design history and there's <laughs> so much of our everyday lives is um very 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 intentionally thought out by designers um and so much of our everyday lives is actually not thought out and should be to make mm. it better and designers mm. often help us do that so yes i mean most museums are designed by a, a really thoughtful architect mm. i mean the the um the contemporary wing in boston is im pay um many many museums uh look to architects to really help them think about the spaces that they want their art to be shown in and so the shell of the museum itself is something that is designed from the ground up and is incredibly intentional um and incredibly uh complex actually in its in its architectural ramifications for the way it controls us and how we behave in those spaces um but yeah the the the, the design is not by accident let's put it that way hmm. I love that a lot too. And like to kind of go back to what you, something you said earlier too, that's just been really stuck in my mind is like, you know, thinking about, I guess just asking, like, I never really thought about this, but the idea of like, what's the point of the museum? And you could say something like, Oh, to have great art or to preserve history. But I really like the idea that it's a place for conversation and for culture and for people to come together and to discuss ideas and yes. and the idea yeah. of an, and 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 to think about investing energy you know i i love the museum i love museums in general but there are so many places that where people a- achieve that thing that idea of mm-hmm. of communities coming together and having conversations mhm 100% and actually one of my favorite places and i think even more favorite than museums for that are libraries. Um, And they are much more accessible to most people. Um, Libraries are places where you will find people who have kids and need to have them looked after in the middle of the day when they need to file a job application on a computer. Mm -hmm. They are places where people who are maybe houseless will go for rest and uh, respite um, to have something warm, to be able to just sit down for a second outside of, or inside, I should say, away from um, uh, the street or away from other kinds of distractions. They're a place where somebody can go off to school if their home is not quiet or if they you know, need to have a safe space before they get picked up by a parent. Um, they are spaces of gathering and communion and uh, they're usually free to go into. Um, and they usually have extended hours because they respond to uh, the need of people who have you know, different types of um, uh, uh, you know, working shifts and, and, and patterns of labor. And so, yeah, for me, the, the library is a, a place that kind of achieves many of the things the museum would like to, but maybe finds it more difficult to because of some of its constraints. Hmm. 
Yeah, yeah like, can you that. imagine if it cost $25 to go to a library? Every time. No. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? The people would revolt. Uh, that's, that's where it really, the, the, the library really sort of came from in many ways. I, I'm digging deep back into my architectural history college to think about the sort of birth of some of the libraries, the public access to libraries in the, I want to say, late 18th, early 19th century in France, 19th century, and thinking about the, um, hmm, the, the, the ways in which even some of the architecture, um, the ornament of the architecture on, on the outside of a specific library in France had um, a stone ornament of a gas lamp on it um, because it wanted to show that it was somewhere where you could come after darkness or come after hours and it would still be illuminated. It was a space that you could get into after the working day was done um, mm-hmm. because it was there for people of different classes or different um, labor categories who would need to access it at different times. And so, yes, I I mean, I, I love libraries because they are these spaces of, of public gathering and, um, and safety a lot of the time. It's interesting, too, because maybe this is my personal association, but I feel that this might be more generalizable opinion. Um, when you think of an institution like a museum, there's a, not necessarily hostility to it, but there's a grandiosity and there is that sort of like you have an awareness when you're walking into the space that it is a sort of a sacred space in a way, like as if you were entering like maybe like a government building or something like or that. A or church. Like, yeah, or a church. Where a library feels so much more um, like welcoming in a way, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think if you've been to one of my favorite library experiences in the world is going into the Bryant Park Library, the New York Public Library, right in the middle of Midtown. And because it was really close to where I went to school, and it was sort of right in the middle, actually, of where I worked at MoMA and where I was going to school at CUNY. Um, that place is fancy. <laughs> you walk into it and it is uh, really grand. Um, it, it really, you know, people pay a lot of money to get married there. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and so um, it is It is fancy, but it is also, you know, there's the whole, um, the, the whole series of New York Public Libraries, uh, as there are um, city libraries across many different neighborhoods in, in many different metropolitan and rural areas. And so just as you can get many different sizes of museums, you get many different sizes of libraries. I think, though, that I'm always struck by the wonder of like, oh, my goodness, I'm walking into this space. And whether it's like the NYPL right in Midtown or it's the local library branch wherever I'm living, this space is for me. I can walk in like there's Mm -hmm. no there's nobody asking me why I'm here. There's nobody thinking I shouldn't be here. I can go in and it feels like a space that I can spend as long as I want in and I can discover new things. All I have to do is run my finger along the spines of a specific shelf and I will be able to alight upon something that I won't have seen before, I won't have known before and might transport me in some way. I love that. It's interesting too, I'm thinking architecturally the parallels between our Boston Public Library and the MFA. And they mm-hmm. both have, and even architecturally speaking, the famous sargent murals. Both of them have mm-hmm. those. Mm-hmm. Um, the outside mm-hmm. courtyard, gift shop. Like, there's even a cafe in the Boston Public Library. But yep. it's that maybe that um, entry ticket price does change the atmosphere a little bit. I think that's true. Yeah, and I, I, I it's not that the museum is 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 not trying to do those things too, mm. and it's not that it doesn't achieve them sometimes too. But it really. Um, it is, it's a different proposition when you have to pay 25 bucks to, to enter. Mm. 
What do you think it was about Sargent back then? Why why was he <laughs> like why did every like building want want his his work all over it? You're asking the wrong person. I think <laughs> I do not I do not spend my time thinking about dead white male artists. Yeah. And so while I have a I mean, I think he was the I think the short answer is and somebody who studies Sargent would be better at, at talking about it. Right. I think the short answer is that he was sought after. Um he was a known quantity and when somebody is building a large public a civic institution, whether it's a museum or library or somebody else, just in the same way today that everybody likes to ask, I don't know, uh Liz Diller or someone else to come build their museum for them because she's a known name. Um I think that but uh, in the same way, there was a certain status and um, pride in having an artist who was uh, respected and even controversial in terms of his celebrity come and create um, artwork for uh, a space that was new. Um, and I, I, I mean, I feel at the point in time when he came and did those commissions, I think it may even, and this is this is for a sergeant scholar to, to think about, may even have been a slightly conservative choice um, mm-hmm. because it's sort of a safe bet in some ways. Like this is this is a known quantity. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I think it's a it's sort of a recognizable stamp of approval perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a, and a, you know, a beautiful one. It's not that I don't like sergeants at all, but um, yeah, I have, again, choosing where to focus one's energies on, I have not um, spent <laughs> more time than I have been required to looking <laughs> <Right>. at artists. <laughs> Um, who already have enough attention paid to them and are not going to hurt for one more pair of eyes not looking that way. Right. Yeah, very understandable. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in Boston. Yeah. Yes. Although, you know, I, I think it's great. You know, I, 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 I love that I'm in a city that takes such pride in um, its connection to Sargent and, you know, no harm, no foul. What a wonderful artist. But uh, I, I, I leave it to other people who have spent more time thinking about him because um, they are by far the experts. <laughs> Wow, I really thank you, Michelle, for speaking with us. I don't want to keep you too much longer because we're already over time, but I really appreciate this conversation. There's a lot to think about. No, thank you for your questions. They were amazing, and it was really nice to to chat. It was a nice way to end the day, actually. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We pride ourselves on on feeling like we have a, a really unique and, and rare con- uh, collection of, of conversations, so we're really, really happy to to add you to that catalog. No, really, thank you for having me. And it's it's always really nice to be asked by somebody in Boston. I think that, um, as we were just saying, Boston actually does have a really amazing art scene, and it happens in so many places. I feel lucky that I get to have some of my art experiences at the MFA, but I'm also really excited by the fact that there are so many conversations happening across the city in so many other venues as well. And so we're lucky to have an arts ecosystem that happens everywhere, um, not just in museums. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love to hear you say that. I have so much more to say on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, thank you both and sleep well when it comes. Yeah, yeah you, you too. too. We'll, have you to, so we'll have to have another conversation soon. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Thank you for having me. Take care. All Take right, care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Boston Art Podcast is an independent DIY production by Brian Huntress and Theodora Earthworms. The information contained in this episode represents the views and opinions of the original creators or our guests, and does not represent any institution, organization, or business. Find us on Instagram at Boston Art Podcast, and tune in for a new episode every Friday. Thank you for listening.